Good afternoon and welcome. I'm Keith Whittington, Associate Professor in Politics here at Princeton and the Acting Director this year of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. Um, I'm very pleased to welcome as our speaker for today for, in the program, uh, Randy Barnett, who is the Austin B. Fletcher Professor at Boston University uh, School of Law. Um, Professor Barnett um, works primarily on contracts as well as on constitutional law, which is what he'll be speaking on uh, today. He's the author of uh, a number of important works, including uh, The Structure of Liberty, Justice, and the Rule of Law, uh, which was published by Oxford University Press in 1998, uh, and the book that he'll be discussing today, Restoring the Lost Constitution, The Presumption of Liberty, which actually is available in paperback, I believe, at this point. Almost. So soon you'll be able to provide, buy a cheaper copy um, uh, of Restoring the Lost Constitution, uh, published by our own uh, Princeton University Press. Uh, and uh, Professor Barnett also uh, recently, for the first time, argued before the Supreme Court in the medical marijuana case, um, which he uh, vacillated as to whether or not to uh, talk about today, and he'll be happy to answer questions about medical marijuana to your heart's content um, at the end of the talk. Uh, but first, um, restoring the lost Constitution. Professor Barnett. Uh, thank you, Keith. I, I am very pleased to be here. I did think about, when I saw you coming in here, that maybe I should take a vote and say how many people want to hear me talk about my book and restoring the lost Constitution, how many people want to hear me talk about the Supreme Court case uh, in uh, Ashcroft versus Raich, which I argued. And I decided to uh, not take a chance you'd vote for the medical marijuana case and, uh, and just go with the announced program uh, on the, so that we won't, we'll avoid any charges of bait and switch. Um, but I would be happy to. It is actually not unrelated since, we, since the uh, medical cannabis case is based in the one, the, as it's currently structured in the Supreme Court, not in the lower court, but in the Supreme Court, it's based entirely on the Commerce Clause. Um, the, the, the positions I'm going to be discussing today with respect to my book are really covering the same terrain. I did also prepare a handout uh, for you on the assumption that you have not memorized these clauses of the Constitution. Um, and, and you'd be in good company in not knowing what they say because the, three, the, the thesis of my book and the thesis of this talk is these are the clauses that are ignored and overlooked and generally lost. Um, and so I have this so that you can follow along, as well as certain cases I'm going to be mentioning by name, which I will not assume that, that you have necessarily, you're, you're intimately familiar with. I was also talking to Keith about, I was going to make some cultural reference, uh, said like local humor joke about uh, the medical care you get here from the television show House, which is set in Princeton, except now I'm told, is, I didn't do any research on this, but I'm told that apparently there is no such hospital that's really in Princeton, and this is some in-joke that the TV show has. And uh, so I was going to ask Keith after the talk to drive me past this hospital, because I really like this TV show. It's a medical show. Um, but there is no apparent. Does anybody know where that hospital really is, the one that they show you the overhead of? It's the student center. That's the hospital. Well, so see, it is, it is, it is set in Princeton. And so... Uh, Right. Anyway, it's a great show uh, if you like popular television shows. But um, apparently, I, I, he didn't think many people here would get the reference. Um, and whoops, that's a light. That's not a mic. Um, and so I didn't. I decided not to mention it. All right. So, um, so uh, instead, I'll talk about my book and, and let's get started. On May 21st, 1972, Laszlo Toth, a 33-year-old Australian geologist, slipped past. Uh, slipped into St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. He dashed past the guards, 
vaulted a marble balustrade, and attacked Michelangelo's Pieta with a sledgehammer. With 15 blows, he removed the virgin's arm at the elbow, knocked off a chunk of her nose, and chipped one of her eyelids. Now suppose that instead of the Pieta, a madman managed to evade security at the National Archives to attack the original United States Constitution on display there. Using a knife, he's able to cut whole passages out of the parchment. The nation would surely be appalled by this heinous act. Yet since the early years of the Republic, it's, the thesis, it's my thesis and the thesis of the book, the Justice of the United States Supreme Court have accomplished what no madman ever could, redact the Constitution by excising important parts of what it says. Now, this term redact is an interesting one. It's a term used by lawyers. You may not be that familiar with it. It's a common term, but it's used by lawyers. And it means uh, when lawyers redact a document, it's because they're showing a document to somebody and there's parts of it they, that that somebody is not supposed to see so that they cut out or they blot out the parts that the person is not supposed to see. That's called redacting the document. And what I, my thesis is, in basically in essence, and the cover of my book uh, bears that out, is that um, bears out that theme, and that is that uh, uh, the Constitution has been effectively redacted by omitting certain portions of the Constitution. Now, my talk has um, three parts. The first is, in one, is, is a quick and, I have to say, rather dirty overview of 200 years of constitutional history to talk about how these individual clauses got omitted. The second part is a discussion of the doctrine that the court has adopted to replace the clauses in the Constitution, and this is the doctrine known as the presumption of constitutionality. And the third part, the final part, is what I propose, the doctrine I propose to uh, restore the lost Constitution uh, by putting back into effect and honoring those provisions of the Constitution that have been eliminated. So let's get on to the first part first. Just 30 years after ratification, the Supreme Court weakened both the Necessary and Proper Clause and the Commerce Clause. This is the point at which I have these things here so I don't have to read the clauses out loud to you. In the case of McCulloch versus Maryland, Chief Justice John Marshall equated the term necessary in the Necessary and Proper Clause with mere convenience thereby converting what would have been a matter of constitutional principle, is something necessary or not, into one of legislative policy, is it a good idea or not, uh, and effectively thereby removing this textual constraint from the purview of judicial review. If it's a matter of necessity, if it's a matter of principle, then that's something that the judges, that the, the judicial review can get a handle on to really ask whether the legislation is necessary in that sense. If it's simply a matter of convenience, then that's not something that would be amenable to judicial review. And I should say that uh, James Madison, when he was president, he signed into law the very bill, the bank bill, that was held, uh, uh, that Justice Marshall was ruling upon, was upholding in McCulloch versus Maryland. So Madison signed that bill into law. M Marshall upheld the bill in McCulloch, and then Madison complained uh, somewhat bitterly about the reasoning that was used in McCulloch versus Maryland. And one of his complaints, and this was a, an outcome that he agreed with, but one of his complaints was that if you adopt the court's reasoning, by what handle can the, can the courts, can the judiciary take hold of the case? The answer is there isn't any, and you've basically given up that limit on congressional power. In Gibbons versus Ogden, um, Marshall began the loosening of the commerce power, which is the power that's at issue in the medical cannabis case, and that is the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with Indian tribes. Now, there's a good part of Gibbons that ultimately, that usually is overlooked by courts and by law professors, and that's a part of Gibbons in which John Marshall affirms that the enumeration 
of these three commerce powers, there's actually three commerce powers listed there. There's the power uh, of commerce with foreign nations, there's the power among several states, and there's the power with Indian tribes. The fact that there were three commerce powers listed there, he says, quote, presupposes something not enumerated, and that something must be the exclusively internal commerce of a state. So the, otherwise, if it weren't his reasoning here, and I think he's absolutely right here, if his, if his reasoning here is that if, if, if the Constitution had just given Congress power over all commerce in the United States, they wouldn't have had to, seg- they wouldn't have had to identify these three kinds of commerce. They would have just said Congress shall have power over commerce, period. They didn't say that, and what's left off the list is the wholly internal commerce of a state. I should say that that passage is not only generally overlooked and neglected by courts, although we do quote it in our briefs in our case, um, but when I went to emphasize this point to my students this year in my constitutional law class, and I started to, I, I couldn't, I wasn't actually not berating the student for not finding the language, but I was pushing the student quite highly. And then I, when I went to the whole student, uh, the whole class to try to find this language, it turns out the editors of my casebook had edited this passage out of the excerpt of uh, Gibbons that appeared in the casebook. That's how significant they found it. Just in case you think that this claim of redaction is like a wholly uh, metaphorical, here we have a literal redaction of McGibbons to eliminate this part. Now, having said this good thing, however, then Marshall proceeded to expand the reach of the Commerce Clause uh, to, uh, beyond commerce that might take place between one state and another uh, to include as well any internal commerce that, in Marshall's words, concerns more states than one. That's language that's been heavily, that language, believe me, is not excerpted from any casebook. That's the key language of that opinion. Concerns more states than one certainly suggests a broader meaning than simply the commerce that takes place between one state and another. Now, the next passage to be redacted was a limitation on state power. The first two passages I've talked about, the Commerce Clause and the Necessary and Proper Clause, define the scope or are part of the clause that define the scope of federal power. Um, and I guess let me just take a word, because I see that uh, just looking out here, I take it that many of you are not law students. And, um, and, and, and I mean that. I don't mean that insultingly. I think it's actually a good thing. But, the, um, but the, because of that, let me just point out to you something that I know that a lot of uh, people don't realize if you're not a lawyer, and that there's actually a list of powers. There's a list of powers in the Constitution that is supposed to define the powers that the federal government has. Now, I know this will... This, if this is coming as a surprise to you, or if you think I'm making this up, um, I, I urge you to take a look at Article One, Section 8 sometimes, because you'll find the list. There's a list of things that the Congress is empowered to do. Um, and um, the reason why I, you would be forgiven for not knowing this is because the, it, the, the function of this list has been completely eliminated, so that now the only list that you're really familiar with as a citizen is the list of rights in the Bill of Rights, because that... For, at least most of those rights, and there's some that aren't, but most of, like the Second Amendment, but there's some, but most of those rights are taken seriously but by the courts. But this list of enumerated powers is really no longer taken that seriously, so no one, no member of the general public really even knows that the list is there. But that's what we're talking about. These first two cases are part of the reason, and I'll tell you more of the reason later on, the story continues, about why that list was rendered irrelevant. And the first was to expand the Necessary and Proper Clause, which comes at the end of the list, um, and the second is, is to expand the commerce power, which this the John Marshall just began and then it continued later uh, in the 20th century. But now the next pr- provision I'm going to talk about is not part of the definition of federal power. It was, a sta- it was a constitutional limit on state power, federal limit on state power. Uh, and this particular passage 
which is known as the Privileges or Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment, um, was eliminated entirely in one fell swoop. Uh, the Privileges or Immunities Clause says that no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. In 1873, a mere five years after its ratification, this clause was functionally ripped from the Constitution by a bare majority of the court uh, in, the case of, in the cases known as the slaughterhouse cases. Um, and, now, I mean, it's one thing to debate about the interpretation of a particular case. Uh, the, function, the, the result of this case is, cannot be disputed. The Privileges or Immunities Clause um, has not been cited in any case since 1873. Now, this is the second sentence of the 14th Amendment. The, the sentence, there is one exception. There's a case called Sens versus Roe that was decided in the late 90s that did invoke, for the first time ever, the Privileges and Immunities Clause uh, in, a, in a minor way. So putting that one case to one side, however, it has not been used since 1873, even though it's the third sentence, the second sentence of the, of the uh, 14th Amendment. It follows immediately after the definition of United States citizenship, and it was really the linchpin which I describe in my book, it really was the linchpin of the amendment. It makes all the other provisions of the amendment make sense if you plug this particular provision back in. But it was gone. After 1873, it's gone. That should be a little disturbing, don't you think? Just a little bit, anyway. All right. So then in, 19, uh, in 1903, in the case of Champion versus Ames, the Supreme Court further broadened the power of commerce, uh, 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 Congress's power over commerce, by interpreting that the power to regulate commerce, which is what the power that was given Congress, also includes the power to prohibit commerce of which Congress disapproves. In, the, in, the, in, in Champion versus Ames, it's also known as the lottery cases. It inv involves the interstate shipment of lottery tickets, state lottery tickets, which Congress disapproved of state lotteries or lotteries, and so it prohibited the interstate shipment of lottery tickets. And the court said, well, Congress has this power over interstate commerce. It's plenary. It's complete. It's full. They can prohibit things as well as just regulate them. And that was the first time, 1903, that was the first time that that proposition was decided by the Supreme Court, that regulation included also prohibition. Today, of course, that seems automatic because we use the word regulate nowadays as a euphemism for prohibit. We say regulate this, regulate that. What we really mean most of the time is prohibit it. What it doesn't necessarily mean that originally, it could just as easily mean make regular. If you want to do something, here's how you do it. Uh, if you want to make a will, you have to have this many signatures. It doesn't say you can prohibit will making, but it regulates it. Um, then, there, now it's true that there were a few cases, particularly uh, cases in the progressive era, such as the now vilified case of Lochner versus New York. Let me just take a show of hands. How many of you have heard of the case of Lochner versus New York? Okay, quite a few of you. Um, those of you who have heard of it um, uh, probably also know that we, as law professors who teach at accredited law schools, are required, whenever we refer to the case of Lochner v. New York, to refer to it as the infamous case of Lochner v. New York or the now vilified case of Lochner v. New York. We can't just refer to it like it's a... Supreme Court case that was decided in 1905. Um, so I conform my conduct to the ethics of my profession and refer to it as the now vilified case of Lochner v. New York. It's true that in this case, uh, the Supreme Court did a terrible thing. Uh, those of you who know about the case know what the terrible thing was. For those of you who do not, do not, I'll tell you what the terrible thing that it did. And in cases, in Lochner and cases like Lochner, of which there were not enough, or there were not that many, I should say, um, what the court did was, on occasion, use the due process clause of the 14th Amendment to demand some justification for state legislation that, ref that restricted liberty or the privileges or immunities of citizenship. 
I can, I can tell by your looks on your faces you're all shocked. So let me just restate that. They demanded that there be some justification for state legislation that restricted the liberties of citizens. There had to be some showing about why this was justified. I know it's shocking that they did this, but don't worry, it, it didn't last long. Um, but uh, they did do this for a, a short while. Um, and then the same, in, during, during roughly the same era, uh, they also demanded uh, for a brief time, uh, they also scrutinized federal laws to see if it might be within the Congress, the commerce power of the federal government. It might, might be among those enumerated powers on that list, and, and that didn't last long either. Uh, but there was this period of time which law students are taught was a horrible period of time which we should never return to. It was the era of judicial, the height of judicial activism, we're told. Um, and, what, and, and the end of the story that all law students know is that by the 19, uh, beginning of the 1930s, um, the court began to pull away from that eliminated review. Uh, first, they refused to scrutinize state laws. Um, and then in the 1940s, in cases such as Wickard versus Filburn, which is a case that we discussed at length, uh, in the Supreme Court oral argument in, in, um, in the medical cannabis cases, case, which just in case you think these old cases don't matter, they do. Um, in the cases of Wickard versus Filburn, the, the court effectively granted Congress a virtual unlimited power under the Commerce Clause power. It basically said in Wickard, Wickard stands for two propositions. First, it stands for the proposition, actually it wasn't initiated in Wickard, it was some other New Deal cases, that Congress can reach wholly intrastate activity, activity that's not interstate, it's just inside a state, if that activity substantially affects interstate commerce. That's the, that was the proposition Wickard reaffirms. And then Wickard added to that that the way you determine substantial effect is you don't just examine each person's activity by itself, but you basically identify the class of activities, the whole class of activities that this is just one example of, and ask whether the class of activities in the aggregate substantially affects interstate commerce, which is relatively easy to find with, protect, with respect to almost any intrastate activity. So that's known as the aggregation principle. So after that, between the substantial effects doctrine and the aggregation principle after Wickard, it was generally assumed and in fact taught by law professors that Congress essentially had unlimited power uh, under the Commerce Clause power. Um, now, and that, that situation came to be qualified in the 90s, in, and I'll tell you more about that later. Now, with the court's virtually limitless interpretation of the enumerated powers scheme, the Commerce Clause and Necessary and Proper Clause and other clauses as well, um, also eliminated from the Constitution was the Tenth Amendment, which says the powers not delegated to the United States nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. Obviously, if you're going to interpret the delegated powers in a relatively or functionally unlimited fashion, then this provision really makes no sense anymore. It really doesn't mean basically the power, there are no powers not delegated to the United States, and so it just doesn't matter what follows that. Um, now, th this expansive interpretation of the enumerated powers, the Commerce Clause and Necessary and Proper Clause, also uh, violates the first sentence of Article I, uh, which I don't think I have on the uh, – I do. I have it on the top of the list here. All, it says, all legislative powers herein granted – that's for those of you who think I was lying about the existence of this list because you never heard of it before – all those – all legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in the Congress of the United States. Herein granted is a reference to the enumerated powers that are listed in the Constitution. I should point out that the executive power isn't qualified that way and the judicial power is not qualified that way. Only the legislative power has that herein granted language. 
Essentially, this herein-granted language means exactly the same thing as the Tenth Amendment, which I think is one reason why Madison thought that the Tenth Amendment was superfluous of what was in the Constitution already, especially those two words. But those two words are, in effect, gone. They're redacted. They are lost if, under the, under the interpretation of the Commerce Clause, the Necessary and Proper Clause, and also other clauses that I haven't talked about, like the so-called Spending Clause, Congress basically has unlimited power. Now, also cut from the text in the 1940s, was the Ninth Amendment that reads, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Some of you who are reading that language for the first time might find that a revelation, that, that those words actually are in the Constitution. I did not make that up. I would like to have thought I made it. James Madison made up those words, but uh, he was on the committee. It was his idea to put those words in there, but I didn't make it up. And, um, um, but they're, they're really there. And why haven't we heard of them, or why don't we know about them? Why, basically, are there no cases, virtually no, there are a couple cases, but virtually no cases that have relied upon them? Um, well, this stems back to the 1947 case of United Public Workers versus Mitchell, in which Justice Reed makes the following, and you'll see why in a moment, this is a rather confused statement by the Supreme Court, which said, and I'm going to quote this exactly, and I'll, I'll quote it again. If granted power is found, Necessarily, the objection of invasion of those rights reserved by the Ninth and Tenth Amendments must fail. Now, this is a careless, at best, statement on a couple of grounds. Uh, first of all, it says rights reserved by the Ninth Amendment. The Ninth Amendment speaks of rights retained. Those are rights people had before government was founded, as opposed to rights reserved, which might have been something done by the Constitution itself. Then it says rights reserved by the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, but you'll see from the list that the Tenth Amendment doesn't say anything about rights. It's only about governmental powers, federal powers, delegated powers. Only the Ninth Amendment speaks of rights. But this just gives you some idea of how careful the Supreme Court is with the text before it's about to say that it doesn't have any effect and it's gone. Um, and the reason it doesn't have any effect is it says if granted powers found, Necessarily, the objection of invasion of those rights retained by the Ninth and Tenth Amendments must fail. Well, and we're going to find the granted power under our limitless interpretation of the Commerce Clause and the Necessary and Proper Clause, so now this clause is gone. Poof. Um, so the, I'm I, I hope that in this very brief, and I could, you know, in the I wrote a whole book about this, and so uh, I should be forgiven for being a little brief here in this talk. I, I'm, I'm much more careful and, 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 and a little, maybe a little less uh, flippant uh, in the book about trying to explain the history about how this happened uh, step by step. Uh, but I hope I've at least, at least sold you on the possibility, that, uh, on the plausibility of the claim that over the past 200 years, the Supreme Court has done what a madman like Laszlo Toth could never do. Take a razor to the text of the Constitution and eliminate those portions that, that were inconvenient. And these portions that were taken away they're not a random selection of random mistakes. Anybody can make a mistake. Even the Supreme Court can make a mistake. Actually, if you, the more you teach constitutional law, you would say these, especially the Supreme Court, can make a mistake. But the, uh, anybody can make a mistake. But these were not randomly selected passages for omission. It's these passages, with these passages gone, the meaning of the Constitution essentially flips. With these passages there, what the Constitution established was, in the words of Princeton professor Steve Macedo, islands of governmental powers in a sea of individual liberty rights. And if you take these passages out, you can then interpret the same document with these passages gone as islands of liberty rights 
those are the Bill of Rights you've heard so much about, in a sea of governmental powers. That's a fundamentally different constitution as a result of eliminating the passages that get in the way of the islands of rights in a sea of powers view. All right, so that's the first part of my talk, the descriptive part about how these clauses got eliminated or the clauses that did get eliminated. Now, the second part of my talk is what is the doctrine that the Supreme Court replaced these clauses with? And there is one. It's called the presumption of constitutionality. It is not one that most of the public have heard about. It's actually not one that's all that terribly emphasized in constitutional law classes, although it's mentioned and you see it. But it's not, a lot of time isn't spent uh, playing with it. But it comes up a lot in litigation, I can tell you that. And it comes up a lot in the cases as well. Um, and what is the presumption of constitutionality? What, uh, this, this doctrine that replaced this, these inconvenient pieces of text we've already talked about. Uh, it basically is an idea, a, a presumption that says that uh, a law is going to, uh, a law is constitutional. Uh, it's presumed to be constitutional unless it's shown not to be. Well, that sounds reasonably harmless. Um, a presumption could, in theory, is supposed to be rebuttable. This is what it makes it a presumption. So you know, basically presume something is okay unless you're, it's shown that it's not. Um, but at least in, since the 1956 case of Williamson v. Lee Optical, and probably before, but at least since that case, unless the liberty, unless the liberty that's being restricted by a particular law is deemed by the court to be fundamental, and I'm going to talk about that in a moment. That's a very important part of current doctrine. Unless the liberty is deemed by the court to be fundamental, the presumption of constitutionality is, in effect, irrebuttable. There is no way to rebut it. So it's no longer a real presumption anymore. It's simply a rule of law that says all laws are constitutional unless they happen to affect a fundamental right. Again, we'll talk about what a fundamental right is in a moment. In this case, Williamson v. Leoptical, the opinion was written by Justice William O. Douglas, a, significant, a fact that I think will be significant in a moment, I'll point out in a moment. And in that case, what he said was, all that Congress has to have by way of justification for passing a law, and states have to have by way of justification for passing a law, it, it actually, it's not necessary that they actually have had a good reason. All that's necessary is a court could imagine a possible reason the legislature might have had for passing a law. And if they can imagine one, that's good enough. The presumption is upheld. So that's why I say, in effect, it's not a presumption at all. It's a rule that de determines what the outcome is. Now, with that degree of deference to legislative power at the state and federal level, what's left of judicial review? Well, you all know there is judicial review. You know judges are justices and judges are striking laws down for being unconstitutional. And if my story is accurate, in which laws should be upheld if, if a court can think of a possible reason why they might be justified, uh, then there really wouldn't be any judicial review. But you know there is judicial review. So where does judicial review come from? Well, the theory, the modern theory of judicial review, with a very important qualification, I will tell you, comes from a 1938 case. In fact, it doesn't, it comes from a single footnote in a 1938 case. A footnote that is so famous that if you ask any constitutional law professor about that footnote by its number, footnote four, Every constitutional law professor in the United States will know what case, what, what, what case you're talking about, just by saying footnote four. It's so famous, there is an entry in the, Supreme, in, the, in the Oxford Companion to the United States Supreme Court devoted entirely to footnote four. Every encyclopedia about the United States has an article about footnote four. That's how famous it is. Um, and every law school graduate knows about it. Actually, I, when I give this talk at law schools, 
and, and, there's, and there's law students out there, and I say, and if you've taken constitutional law, if you finished your constitutional law class and you don't know what footnote, the name of the case that footnote four goes with, then I predict that you did less well on your exams than you hoped to, uh, because that's not a good sign. All right, so what is footnote? The, na the name of the case is United States versus Caroline Products. It, it actually involves, in case you're interested, uh, idle curiosity, and, and involved a very public interested statute that attempted to limit the sale of um, uh, what was called filled milk, which was a, 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 a product that competed with whole milk in the market. And you can imagine this was a completely public interested piece of legislation that had nothing whatsoever to do with the dairy lobby and the agricultural interests who would have been benefited by these laws. Um, uh, nothing whatsoever to do with that. Uh, but at any rate, um, it was, it, but it, in, the, in the body of the of opinion, it talks about the presumption of constitutionality, that the presumption of constitution, here's what it says. Um, in the body of the opinion, which is normally not read that much. Everybody only cares about the footnote four. But here's what it says. There may be narrower scope for operation of the presumption of constitution. Whoop, 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 I just skipped ahead. Um, that's the first footnote. Let me, let me, this is how the footnote starts. The body of the opinion asserts the pr presumption of constitutionality. And here's how footnote four starts. It consists of three paragraphs, which are really three long sentences. And I'm only going to read the first of these paragraphs because it's the one that has to do with liberty. Uh, and it says this. There may be narrower scope for operation of the presumption of constitutionality when legislation appears on its face to be within a specific prohibition of the Constitution, such as those of the first ten amendments, which are deemed equally specific when held to be embraced by the 14th. All right. Let me say that again. I, it's the first time you've ever heard it, some of you. Um, and it, it, it really replaces all of those inconvenient things that are in the Constitution. So let me read it again. It becomes, the, the language is very important. There may be narrower scope for operation of the presumption of constitutionality when legislation appears on its face to be within a specific prohibition of the Constitution, such as those of the first ten amendments, which are deemed equally specific when held to be embraced within the 14th. This should automatically, you should start be seeing why it is all you've ever heard about are the Bill of Rights, the first ten amendments, because this is the reason. This is what's pointing you in that. This is what's pointing courts in that direction. It's only the first ten amendments or some other specific prohibition that matters now. Otherwise, you get this presumption of constitutionality. Footnote four, therefore, basically describes the modern theory of judicial review with respect to individual liberty. There are two other paragraphs in footnote four, one of which which deals with equality or the pr protection of what's known as discrete and insular minorities from laws. That's another time in which the presumption of constitutionality could be restricted. Uh, and another has to do with laws that adversely affect the political process, um, election laws, voting laws, those kinds of things. Those also might get a higher degree of scrutiny from the Supreme Court. And I'm not, but I'm not talking about those two paragraphs. I'm only talking about the protections of liberty per se. Um, and the modern theory of judicial review and the judicial protection of liberty is as follows. Presume all laws to be valid. And what we really mean is uphold all laws because it's not a rebuttable, it's, a, it's an irrebuttable presumption. Except when an enumerated right listed in the Bill of Rights is infringed, in which event the court will then put the burden on the legislature to show that their actions were both necessary and proper. I should say that the modern theory is modified from this, and I'm going to give you the modification in just a second. Gone now, however, with footnote four is the enumerated power scheme. And in its place, what we have now is a sole reliance on some of the rights enumerated in the Bill of Rights. And I say only some because the Second Amendment's right to keep and bear arms has never been 
deemed by the court to be among those specific prohibitions um, that are held to be equally specific when applied to the states via the 14th Amendment. I, I should say that one of the reasons why there's a great debate about what the original meaning of the Second Amendment is is precisely because if it were, if the conclusion were reached that it really did protect an individual right, it would fit within footnote four and would have to be given protection. Footnote four, the existence of footnote four explains in part why there is this debate over the original meaning of the Second Amendment. Does it belong among those specific prohibitions or does it not belong among those specific prohibitions? That's what's really being decided. Now, this, this, uh, the particular rights that happen to be enumerated made this strategy politically ingenious. Which is the court that is doing this? It's the New Deal Court. What's the objective of the New Deal Court? By this time, it, the court is dominated by uh, justices appointed by Franklin Roosevelt. The object here is to essentially give the states and the Congress complete legislative control over the economy. That's the political objective. Not to give them control over everything, but to give them control over the economy. And given what happens to be in the Bill of Rights, this presumption creation, this irrebuttable presumption, qualified only by what's in the Bill of Rights, effectuates that strategy. Because now you basically say Congress and the states can do whatever they want with respect to the economy, but what they can't do whatever they want with it has to do with freedom of speech, freedom of press, freedom of assembly, these personal liberties they can't do whatever they want with. So the, the, the specific content that happened to be in the Bill of Rights made this a politically uh, brilliant uh, uh, legal doctrine. Now, for some 20 years, the Supreme Court stayed within this footnote four framework. But then in the 1965 case of Griswold versus Connecticut, it struck down a ban on the sale and use of contraceptives because it said that particular law violated a right of privacy. I also should emphasize to you, this was a ban not only on the personal use and possession of contraceptives, it was a ban on the sale, the commercial sale of contraceptives as well. That was what was the charge Someone was charged with selling them, a physician, through a, through a health clinic. Um, so it, was, it, it involved an economic activity, not just a personal activity. And both of these activities were, were held to be, it was, the restrictions on both of these activities, the prohibition of both the economic and the personal in Griswold was held to be unconstitutional. So you have to ask yourself, well, how does that fit within footnote four? And that was really the problem. And it turns out the job of trying to reconciling, or trying to reconcile Griswold, with footnote four, came from what was fell to William Douglas, William O. Douglas, Justice Douglas, the same justice who authored Williamson v. Lee Optical that created that wide-open presumption. So how did he do it? How did he try to reconcile this footnote four scheme, which was this New Deal innovation, with this new protection of the right of privacy? Uh, and he did so by grounding this right of privacy in what he referred to as, quote, specific guarantees in the Bill of Rights which have penumbras formed by emanations from those guarantees that help give them life and substance. Now, this is the famous, or in some circles, infamous, infamous penumbras and emanations reasoning of, uh, of Griswold. And I myself can never remember whether penumbras form emanations or emanations form penumbras. I really don't know, unless I read it right off the page. I always have to look back down and say, no, it's penumbras that are formed by emanations, just in case there's any doubt. All right, so that's where it comes from. Now, the I come here not to ridicule Justice Douglas for his penumbras and emanations um, uh, rhetoric, but to explain why he felt moved to resort to this, because believe it or not, this is not something a Supreme Court justice does 
uh, with, a he- with, you know, with a happy heart. I mean, this is not something they immediately try to do. They only reach for rhetoric like this if they feel compelled to. And what's the source of the compulsion? The source of the compulsion is trying to reconcile a right of privacy, which is nowhere in that specific enumeration of rights, with what's there. So how does he do it? Well, he says, okay, we've got these specific prohibitions, and there are emanations formed by penumbras or... No, penumbras formed by emanations... Uh, and they're out there, and that right of privacy is right there. But he's tr- what he's trying to do here is tie it back to the specific prohibitions, and that would keep him supposedly within footnote four. But neither emanations nor penumbras could conceal the fact that by recognizing a right of privacy, an unenumerated right of privacy, not one of those specific prohibitions, the court had now in 1965 uh, in Griswold escaped the straitjacket it had imposed upon itself in footnote four. And after that, all hell broke loose. The court came under withering fire from former New Dealer constitutional scholars who, however much they may have agreed with the outcome in Griswold, could see no natural stopping point back to the terrible, dreaded Lochner era where the courts are demanding some justification for legislation. We can't go there. And then with Roe versus Wade, the political stakes were raised enormously and former New Deal liberals like Raoul Berger were joined by political conservatives like Robert Bork in lambasting what they refer to as the judicial activism of the court by extending protection beyond the Bill of Rights to unenumerated rights. And the the term judicial activism was not invented by them. It was really invented by political progressives to criticize the Lochner Court, which was striking down progressive legislation on the grounds that it it was unconstitutional. Well, in response to this criticism... Um, or at least after the criticism, whether it was directly in response to it, we'll never know. The court eventually adopted the following limitation on its protection of unenumerated rights, the ones that are not among the specific prohibitions. And this is that fundamental rights doctrine I said I was going to mention, the fundamental rights qualification to footnote four. Only those unenumerated liberties, which the court concluded were, in its words, deeply rooted in the nation's traditions and history, or, in another formulation, were implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. Those are the two formulations, deeply rooted in the nation's tradition and history, implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. Only liberties that met that requirement would be deemed fundamental. And then if they were fundamental, they'd switch the presumption of constitutionality the way the ones that are written do. But they have to meet that requirement for that to happen. All other liberties were deemed by the court to be mere liberty interests, although I should say the quotation mark should be around liberty interest because they don't say mere liberty interest. But whenever you see an opinion that refers to a liberty interest, you might as well just plug in the invisible word mere before it because you know what the outcome is going to be. If all you have is a liberty interest, you're going to lose. The government's claim against you is going to win. So if you just have a liberty interest in your health, a liberty interest in being free from pain and suffering so that you might want to use, for example, cannabis to alleviate that, uh, that has no consti- that's not going to reverse the presumption of constitutionality, not unless you can somehow argue that your right, your liberty is fundamental, because it meets the requirements of deeply rooted in the nation's tradition and history. Now, what this new fundamental rights doctrine did, it, it actually was quite, it, 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 it moved, by moving beyond footnote four this way, it placed courts in the business of having to pick and choose among the unenumerated liberties of the people to decide which were truly fundamental and which were not. Um, Now, 
that's something that we might say is something that courts are not particularly good to, at doing. They have to decide, well, these liberties are fundamental and these liberties are not. Now, that's one of the problems with that, just how you're going to decide and is it a matter, it's sort of a matter of sort of a, uh, it's just a, a, a preference perhaps, a policy preference of judges, or leaving them open to criticisms of being activist judges, let's say. But the other sort of hidden problem, which is a serious practical problem with this approach, is generally not, that, that first problem that, it, that you have to pick and choose is relatively obvious. But there's a hidden problem that's not as obvious that's really every bit as serious. And that is, and I didn't really fully appreciate it myself until I got involved in this litigation. And that is that the outcome of the fundamental rights analysis depends almost entirely on how specifically you define the liberty being asserted. The more specifically you define the right. For example, let's take a, an example of a specific, a very specific right, the right of homosexuals to engage in acts of sodomy. The more specific you define that right, the more difficult a burden it is to reach, to, to claim that that's deeply, that right is deeply rooted in the nation's tradition and history or it's implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. It can easily be ridiculed, uh, especially if it's a liberty that was not protected or was unknown at the time of the founding. Now, liberty as a general matter, of course, is deeply rooted in the nation's tradition and history. Nothing could be more deeply rooted in our nation's tradition and history than a commitment to liberty in general. But any specific liberty that might come under liberty in general is easy to ridicule, and that's the trick. So uh, the outcome of the case will depend almost entirely on how you formulate the liberty, specifically or generally. And let me put this in the context of the medical cannabis case. Um, now, we have a fundamental rights claim in our litigation. It's not the claim that's before the Supreme Court. We won in the Ninth Circuit on a Commerce Clause claim. Um, we did not win on the fundamental rights. That case is, that, that, that theory is still out there. Um, but, so I, but I can tell you what our claims were in the Ninth Circuit, which were not ruled upon by the Ninth Circuit, and that is this. We claimed uh, that there was a fundamental right. The government denied it, all right? That's how we start. Now, what was the fundamental right that we claimed was at issue in our case? We claimed it was a right to be free of unnecessary pain and suffering and to preserve one's life. The right to preserve one's life and to be free of unnecessary pain and suffering, which is what we believe was at issue in our case. Now, nothing sounds more fundamental to me than that. Nothing sounds more deeply rooted in our nation's tradition and history, and nothing sounds more implicit in the concept of ordered liberty than the right to preserve your life and to be free of unnecessary pain and suffering. All right, that's our theory. What's the government's theory? What, how do they characterize the liberty at issue? Well, as you might expect, they characterize it as the right to smoke medical dope, right? Now, it's when, if that's the liberty that's being protected, it's harder to see why that's deeply rooted in our nation's tradition and history, although it turns out that it was only very recently in our history that any effort was made to restrict that use. It was actually a very widely used medicine uh, through most of our history, but put that to one side. It, it seems ridiculous to claim that the right to smoke medical dope is implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. It's easy to ridicule. So obviously, the outcome of fundamental rights analysis in a due process claim in a real case, in a real lawsuit, will depend entirely on who's right. Which formulation is the right one? If we're right, it's fundamental right, shift the burden, we have a good chance of winning. If the government's right, the, the presumption of constitutionality kicks in and the statute is held and if, as, long as, the, as long as the court can think of a possible reason why it might be justified. So who's right? It all depends on that, right? Well, the answer is we're both right. We've just stated the liberty at a different level of generality. We've stated it at a very high level of generality. 
not the highest. The highest level of generality is just to say liberty. This is a lower level than that, but it's still higher than the specifics of this particular liberty, which has to do with the liberty to smoke medical marijuana, marijuana for cannabis for medical purposes. We're both right. Well, if we're both right, then how is the outcome of the case going to be decided? It's going to be decided by a free choice that the court can make, that a judge can make, as to which is the formulation of the liberty at stake. Whichever one they pick is both defensible and will determine the outcome. So first they have to decide what outcome they want to reach, and then they just pick the definition of the liberty that will reach that. That is not a rule of law. The law, the Constitution, is not determining the outcome. First you decide what outcome you want to reach, and then you can come up with a justifiable, justifiable uh, a defense of that outcome by de defining the liberty the way you want. Well, there's something very, very wrong with that. Um, and, and in restoring the lost Constitution, um, I explain that. I mean, I explain that what's wrong with that. Um, I try to provide a lot more evidence of these historical claims that I'm making than I can do in a lecture like this. Um, and I propose an alternative, an alternative to the presumption of constitutionality. I think what we should do is scrap the current approach, and I call this current approach footnote four plus, because it's the only thing that really gets protected is these enumerated rights, some of them, and plus any unenumerated rights that the court deems to be fundamental. I say we scrap that way of looking at it, and we adopt in its place what I call the presumption of liberty, which is the subtitle of my book. And what, and what does that mean? Is that we protect liberty across the board the same way. There's a presumption in favor of individual liberty that can be, it's not an irrebuttable presumption, it can be overcome by the government, but they have to do so. They have to basically make out um, a showing that any given restriction on liberty is both necessary and proper, which is the legal standard provided by the necessary and proper clause, which says laws shall be necessary and proper. That's right in the text. So I didn't make up that standard. Uh, both necessary and proper. At the state level, it would have to be a necessary and proper exercise of the state police power, and then you'd have to have a theory of what that police power is, and I have a chapter of the book devoted to that. And at the federal level, it would have to be a necessary and proper uh, exercise of one of the enumerated powers properly uh, interpreted. Essentially, what I'm arguing, just to summarize what I'm arguing, putting it in word, putting it in a, uh, in a form that I think that a, a, a non-lawyer could fully appreciate, and that is I'm basically essentially arguing that all liberty should be given essentially the same protection that we currently give speech, press, and assembly. Now, we don't give those liberties unlimited uh, protection. Now, we never have. There, for example, is permissible time, place, and manner regulations on the exercise of speech, press, and assembly. <clears throat> Notwithstanding how angry I can see you all are at the destruction that has been done to the Constitution, I can see this in your faces, <clears throat> it, would, it, it would not be legal or permissible for us to all rise as one and march out into the street and block traffic in order to protest what's been done, unless we have <clears throat> a parade permit, because the parade permit is necessary to protect our fellow citizens who are just trying to get to and from work. Or from this famous Princeton Hospital I heard about. And, and so we can't do that. And that is a, a, what, that's what's called time, place, and manner regulations. That we have a right to protest, we have a right to assemble, but it, 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 has to, it is regulated, not prohibited, but regulated in order to protect the liberties of other people. And these regulations are okay, provided for one thing, that they are content neutral. They're not discriminating against us because of what we're protesting about. They would apply to everybody across the board, and they're reasonable, and they give opportunities for doing this sort of thing. 
Uh, and I don't think any liberty deserves – I mean, I'm not, I'm not proposing that under the Constitution any other liberty deserves more protection than that. But I don't think other liberties should get less protection than that. I'm basically giving it across-the-board protection. Now, a mild form of this approach was recently employed by Justice Kennedy in the case of Lawrence versus Texas, which concerns the Texas anti-sodomy law. Now, Justice Kennedy's opinion in Lawrence versus Texas is, is highly controversial. It's been greatly criticized particularly by my conservative friends. Um, and I must say, in the interest of full disclosure, that I wrote an amicus brief in Lawrence on behalf of uh, the Institute for Justice, which argued that the statute in Lawrence, the Texas anti-sodomy law statute, was unconstitutional. Um, now, I believe I, there's, there's a lot in Justice Kennedy's opinion to talk about. I'm not going to talk about it very much, about that much. Uh, we, we could question, there's a lot we could even criticize in it. Uh, so I'm not, this is not an unqualified endorsement of the opinion. But there are two things that he does in this opinion that are potentially revolutionary, if they were followed in other opinions. And I'm not making that prediction. But if they were followed in other opinions, they would be revolutionary. The first thing is that the opinion is not grounded on a right of privacy. It is grounded on liberty. If you read the opinion, the right of privacy is mentioned four times in the opinion, usually to refer to the holding of Griswold versus Connecticut or the pleadings of the parties. Liberty and freedom, liberty is mentioned at least 25 times in the opinion, however. It's really about liberty and not about privacy, which is a rhetorical move that Justice Kennedy also made in the 1992 case of Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which upheld uh, in, in a modified form Roe versus Wade. He shifted from privacy to liberty as his justifying uh, text, which I think is significant. It's, it, it's significant uh, that you're not just singling out privacy, but you're talking about liberty generally. And the second thing that's interesting and significant about, potentially significant about the case, is that, um, is that it protects this liberty without ever having a threshold finding that the liberty in question is fundamental. Now, I've just told you that that's what you're supposed to do as a lawyer. That's what judges are supposed to do. That's what we have to do in our medical cannabis litigation. We have to argue that the liberty in question is fundamental. And only if it's fundamental does it shift the presumption of constitutionality. Now, you've been paying attention. I know you followed me. And now I'm telling you that Justice Kennedy didn't. That's not what he did. In fact, I have a recent article defending my characterization of this case from a, a criticism called Grading Justice Kennedy. And my, and my thesis of that essay is that if any law professor, prior to Lawrence versus Texas being decided, if any law professor had received Justice Kennedy's opinion as an answer to a, a final exam question in their constitutional law class, having taught the doctrine as it existed, the best they would have given it was a B uh, for creativity, um, <laughs> not, necess not necessarily for it, the, the, the quality of its rhetoric. Um, uh, but, but, it, but, but they would not have given it an A because he would not have demonstrated, the, the person who wrote this exam answer would not have demonstrated his or her understanding of the fundamental rights doctrine. They just, they would not have proven they heard what was the professor was saying in class, that they understood the cases. So therefore, at best, it would get a B. Um, I give him an A because, you know, he's, it's not a final exam question. And he's actually, a, he's writing for the Supreme Court. And they're entitled to change the rules. And I don't know, in fact, if they have changed the rules. We'll only know if it's done, if it's done another, a number of other times. But what he does in this case is certainly different. He identifies it as liberty, not privacy. And without identifying the liberty as fundamental, he then shifts the burden to the legislature to justify what it did as reasonable or justified. And then he finds it was not justified. Now, there's a lot to be said about this. I'm not going to say too much more about it. A lot to be questioned about this. Um, for example, how much justification was necessary. Was he right 
to find no justification. Maybe he was wrong. Maybe there really was a justification. But the que- what's interesting to me is not so much whether there was or was not a justification, but, whether, but the fact that the state had the burden of justifying what it had done, even though the liberty was never defended by the court as being a fundamental one. That essentially, in practice, is the presumption of liberty, which I'm proposing be done all the time. We turn to the state and we ask them to, if they're restricting liberty, if that's what they're doing. And there's, by the way, lots of things the government does that does not restrict liberty. But of, if, if what they're doing is telling you, me, or someone else what they may or may not do, it's okay for them to do it if they can justify it, but the burden is on them to justify it. The burden should not be on us to explain why the particular liberty that we have is somehow fundamental. All right, let me now close by emphasizing the following point. To justify its presumption of constitutionality, the Supreme Court has had to eliminate whole passages of the Constitution that inconveniently stood in its way, which I think is good reason to find the doctrine, the presumption of constitutionality itself unconstitutional. A presumption of liberty, on the other hand, would restore this lost Constitution by holding Congress to its enumerated powers and states to the proper exercise of their police power while protecting the privileges or immunities of citizens and the rights retained by the people. For despite the best efforts of the Supreme Court over the past two centuries, all of these portions of the lost Constitution are still to be found in the duly enacted Constitution of the United States. But you don't have to take my word for it. Because the Constitution is in writing, you can look it up. Thanks. Uh, thank you very much. I'm particularly glad that Professor Barnett was able to talk some uh, about uh, Lawrence um, because, as some of you know, it was just a few weeks ago when we had another uh, guest here speaking about Lawrence and characterizes the worst opinion ever written uh, by the Supreme Court. He would have given it less than a, a B. Um, but, but he did give it credit for creativity, I think. It just, just didn't count for much uh, in, in his particular judgment. I also have to apologize to Professor Barnett because in my introduction to him, I was off message uh, and referred to uh, the M word when I should have been saying medical cannabis. Um, so I will have to uh, get, get straight on that and, re- and remember that, especially now that I've agreed to, to be on a panel dis- discussing the case. Uh, I have to uh, make sure my, my terminology is, is always uh, correct uh, when, when talking about it. We do have uh, time uh, for, for questions. It is a uh, mass and program tradition to uh, take the first questions, if there are any, um, from students in the audience before we open it up. Uh, more broadly, so uh, I won't be checking ID, but nonetheless. Uh, before you ask your question, let me just say that it took me years of training by my co-counsels to, uh, in conditioning and shock therapy before I said cannabis uh, without saying marijuana. So, uh, uh, And why do we say cannabis? Well, you can guess. Sounds a lot more medical, doesn't it? Okay. So, Yes.
Well, I'm going to do something I hate to do, and I almost never do, but I, I'm not going to answer the question. Um, and, and the reason I'm not is because I find the issues in Rome are very difficult. I find it very complicated. Uh, for one thing, you're talking about a constitutional am amendment to the Colorado Constitution, um, and, um, and, and they're trying to protect people from claims of discrimination, you know, for example, uh, private property owners from being uh, being held to be guilty of discriminating when they let, for example, their own property out to people on the basis of sexual orientation. Um, and it's such a complicated issue that to explain it to the satisfaction of the whole audience, I, I would have to get into something. And my own views are on the subject are rather conflicted as well. So I, w I just think that at this point it's just too complicated um, and difficult, and not just complicated, but also difficult um, to, to be something that would be accessible to, to most of the audience, if, if, if you'll forgive me. I don't hardly ever do that, and now it means that I can't do it again in this talk. So uh, <laughs> I, I, I hate to pull that one out, like for the first question, because then you never know whether the nuclear option is coming next, and uh, I may need it again. We'll allow you to phone a friend. Not a okay, phone, yeah, great. great. <laughs> Other student questions? That completely deterred all student questions. Yeah, yeah. All right. Yes. Other students can stump you. So. <laughs> Right. So in, in what sense does the federal institution, where, where does it derive such power to restrict or forget the presence of such a big consumption of uh, unconstitutional Okay, it's a very good question. Um, let, me, let me just take the last part first about when you're just talking about the presumption, which way you're going with the presumption. The presumption of liberty, like the presumption of constitutionality, is not in the Constitution. The presumption of constitutionality is not there either. These are doctrines, or what Professor Whittington refers to uh, in his wonderful book, uh, he refers to this as a constitutional construction. In fact, the distinction between interpretation and construction, um, it is a historically justified one, but it's one that I really didn't fully appreciate until I read Keith's book. Um, and so it really makes, it, it operates pretty significantly in my book as a result of being influenced by his book. And, uh, and so, the, so these are constitutional constructions. They are not in the Constitution, but neither one is. So in that sense, they're on equal footing. So I don't purport to find either one in the Constitution. So now the, 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 so the thrust of your question is sort of what gives – there's two parts to it. One is what gives the federal judiciary any oversight, let's put it that way, over the constitutionality of the state exercise, exercise of state powers? And then why is the presumption of liberty a better way of putting that power into effect than the presumption of constitutionality? Let me just rephrase your question that way. As for where they get the authority, they get the authority from the 14th Amendment. In particular, they get the authority, most importantly, from the Privileges or Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment, which I told you has been written out of the 14th Amendment since 1873. And the Privileges or Immunities Clause says that no state shall make or enforce any law which abridges the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. Um, that was, and, 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 and what I think is very important for people who are originalists or people who care about the original understanding of the Constitution to remember, and that is that the fundamental structure of the Constitution was changed, and deliberately so, by amendment, by the 14th Amendment. Before the 14th, and this is for now for the benefit of those of you who haven't studied constitutional law, before the 14th Amendment, there was no reason why 
anybody but a state court had to have any theory of what appropriate state power was. And the reason why there was no reason why you needed a theory of it is because under the original Constitution, the federal government had almost no jurisdiction over the exercise of state power. Now, there were many reasons for that, but one of the reasons for that, we must admit, was the fact that states had exclusive power over slavery and and there was not about to be a new constitution that was going to give the federal government power over local matters, which which included slavery, for example. And so states basically had an unlimited power in the sense that there was no rigorous doctrine to define what their powers were. It was generally referred to as the power of police, but there was no popular prevalent theory that you could find in history about exactly what the police power was. The the passage of the 14th Amendment, however, changed that. For the first time, I mean, I should also just say in the interest of of completeness, there were a few prohibitions on state power that are in the original Constitution, such as the Contracts Clause, the Ex Post Facto Clause. Those clauses got a tremendous amount of litigation in the early years. of that's, That's what a lot of litigation was about because people were asserting that there was a violation of the Contracts Clause because that was the way they could get into federal court about a state law matter. But... With that exception, there basically was no need for a general theory of the police power. The passage of the 14th Amendment creates the need for a theory of the police power. And let me just make one further point. The police power of states, that's nowhere in the Constitution either. There's, nothing in the, there's not a single reference in the Constitution or the 14th Amendment to a police power. In fact, my guess is many of you who have not gone to law school have ever heard of the police power of states. You don't even know what I'm talking about. This is a made-up doctrine. Made-up doesn't mean bad, by the way. Made-up is fine. The presumption of constitutionality, I made that up too. I mean, I sort of. I mean, other people have had the idea, but it's a made-up doctrine. But, I mean, made, it's a made-up doctrine. It's not anywhere in the text. It's a way of understanding what the power of, of, of states are. And it has to be, whatever content it has, has to be consistent with the Privileges or Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment, which says no, no law shall abridge those privileges or immunities. So once you understand what privileges or immunities are, that will give you a much better understanding of what the police power is and what are privileges or immunities. Now, this I do devote a chapter of in my book. I can only give you the conclusion of this now. You, I can't provide you with all the evidence, the historical evidence in defense of that. But privileges or immunities is a reference to essentially two kinds of rights. The first are natural rights, which are the liberties that we have when we form government. That's the Lockean natural rights, which, by the way, the, found, the framers of the 14th Amendment were even more ardent about the existence of than perhaps the founders were. They talked about it every bit as much, if not more, in the debates about the Privileges or Immunities Clause about the 14th Amendment. So essentially, Privileges or Immunities includes the rights retained by the people contained, referred to in the Ninth Amendment. And in addition, it included other positive rights of national citizenship that were created by the Constitution itself, like a right to a jury trial, which James Madison when he was proposing his Bill of Rights initially, referred to as a positive right, not a natural right. But he said it was as essential to the protection of liberty as any natural right is. So if you look at the privileges of immunities as the protection of liberty rights generally and the specific extra rights that come from national and also from state, well, from national citizenship, then you can see that, that uh, uh, the protection of liberty, that the exercise of the police power must be consistent with that. And the way I believe we make, we protect liberty, the way we protect the enumerated liberties, like the freedom of speech and the freedom of the press, and I should also tell you that the framers of the 14th Amendment were particularly interested in protecting the right to keep and bear arms, because that was a right they felt was essential to have uh, white Republicans and freed blacks in the South protect themselves from terrorist violence, which was going on, in fact, ultimately triumphed and caused the the withdrawal of federal troops from the South 
uh, much as some urged the troops be withdrawn from Iraq because of terrorist violence. Um, and that was actually worked in the South. Uh, they thought the right to keep and bear arms was a very important way for these people to protect themselves and, and also to inflict enough violence on the people who were attacking them that law enforcement would get in the middle and stop both sides from fighting, which is what they wanted. So once you have this protection of liberty, once you realize that's what the privileged immunities are, there's absolutely no justification for distinguishing some from others. And then I think that's what makes the presumption of liberty more consistent with the presumption of constitutionality. No, actually, let me just say a word about substantive due process. Um, it's a very interesting subject, which is easier to explain after giving my lecture than beforehand. Um, first of all, how many of you just, I, I need to keep taking hands because I just want to get a sense of what my audience is. How many of you have heard of the phrase substantive due process? Okay. The reason why it's called substantive due process, you, you may know, uh, is because what you think of when you think of due process of law, you think of process or procedures. And substantive due process protects substantive rights, like the right of privacy and that sort of thing. That's under the, for example, I said to you in, that our, our fundamental rights claim in our Ninth, in our ninth Circuit uh, petition is a due process claim. That's it, because that's a current doctrine, that's what it must be. Um, it must be a due process claim. Well, here's how that happened. It, it, substantive due process is a distortion of the original meaning of the due process clause. I should also tell you our current interpretation of the Equal Protection Clause is also a distortion of the original meaning of that clause. And here's why. When, they pull, when the Slaughterhouse cases pulled the Privileges or Immunities Clause out of the 14th Amendment, it left a gaping hole. There was a coherence to the 14th Amendment that was destroyed by the slaughterhouse cases. And the coherence was this. What did the Privileged or Immunities Clause say? Congress shall make, uh, no, a state shall not make or enforce any law which abridges the privileges or uh, immunities of citizenship. It referred to laws. No law should abridge the privilege or immunities of citizenship. There were two ways you could do that. One is by protecting the privileges and, and immunities of some and not of others. That's a discriminatory law. And the other is by taking away everybody's privileges or immunities equally. That would be a non-discriminatory law, but it would still violate that clause. It would be a law that was unconstitutional under that clause. Now, once you had a constitutional law, a law that passed scrutiny under the Privilege or Immunities Clause, what's the function of the next two provisions? Well, then you have the Due Process Clause, which says, nor shall any person be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. What does that mean? That means when you apply these proper non-discriminatory laws that don't violate, un unjustly violate liberty, restrict liberty, to particular individuals, and what do you do when you apply laws to particular individuals? What are the three things you do to somebody? You can fine them by taking away their property, you can incarcerate them by restricting their liberty, or you can execute them and take away their life. That's life, liberty, and property. Those are the three ways that you can use law to hurt somebody, right? That it said no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. So you need procedures to ensure that that's the right person to which this otherwise constitutional law that passed privileges or immunities test is being applied. So what then is the Equal Protection Clause about? The Equal Protection Clause is about protection. That's what it's about. It's not about equal laws, because that's what the Privilege or Immunities Clause is about. The Privilege or Immunities Clause says you should not have discrimination in the protection of privileges or immunities. But the Equal Protection Clause is primarily about making sure that everybody has the protection of the laws under a circumstance in which people in the South in particular were being denied the equal protection of the laws. You had a perfectly proper law against murder, and yet some people are being lynched and not getting the protection of the laws. 
So in a sense, the Privileges or Immunities Clause was primarily, but not exclusively, aimed at legislatures, telling them what they should do. The Due Process Clause was primarily, but not exclusively, aimed at the judiciary, telling it what it should do. And the Equal Protection Clause was primarily, but not exclusively, aimed at the executive branch, telling it what it should do. Now, you had this perfectly coherent scheme that was, being, that was adopted, and, 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 and the, the framers of that scheme understood it perfectly well. When they debated future civil rights bills before the slaughterhouse cases, they used it quite this way. It's only after the slaughterhouse cases they started you know, smoke coming out of their ears, and they didn't know what to do because part of it had just been gutted, and they, and they were there when they passed it, and they were trying to make it come out right. So ultimately what happened is about 15 years after the slaughterhouse cases, when the court personnel changed and people who were more sympathetic with the original understanding, the original meaning of the 14th Amendment came on the court, they tried to restore partially the meaning of the 14th Amendment by expanding the Due Process Clause to include the protection of rights, essentially by saying, look, it's part of the due process of law that it be within the power of the lawgiver. And so judicial review is part of the due process of law. Judicial review to make sure that the law is within the proper scope of governmental power is therefore part of the due process of law. That's the substantive part. And then they also expanded the Equal Protection Clause to include non, you know, scrutiny of discriminatory laws, for example. Uh, so this was so. What ultimately what you had is you had sort of a non-originalist expansion of the Due Process Clause and the Equal Protection Clause to partially compensate for the absence, the now the now absence of the Privileges or Immunities Clause. Um, and that has been done in other areas as well. There's been a number of other efforts to compensate. For, the, for, doing some, for, for, for redacting the Constitution over here and then having to do something else over here. You see it also in the, in the Rehnquist Court's uh, so-called Tenth Amendment jurisprudence, which even the Court admits doesn't have much of anything to do with the original meaning of the Tenth Amendment. But what they're trying to do is once you've given Congress unlimited power over the national economy and the states governments are operating within that national economy, if you were to apply the same doctrine to the states to get applied to the Oakland Cannabis Buyers Cooperative, basically the states would all be subject to complete regulation by the federal government. In order to prevent that from happening, they say, no, we protect states, we carve out states, we protect states specially. Well, that's not a coherent, that's not an originalist reading of the Tenth Amendment at all. The Tenth Amendment doesn't talk about protecting states' rights. It talks about limiting federal power. It actually refers not only to states' powers, but the powers of the people, too. It says states or the people at the end of it. But what they've done is they've carved this out to protect the states from this over-interpretation of the Commerce Clause. So they've, that's a step in the right direction, but it's, not, it's only a partial step. What, has, what it introduces, what the substantive due process doctrine introduces into the Constitution is, uh, first of all, it, it legitimates um, uh, non-originalist interpretation because the due process, this interpretation of the Due Process Clause and Equal Protection Clause can't be justified on originalist grounds. So, therefore, you shouldn't be an originalist because you believe in those things. You shouldn't do that, and those things. And on the flip side is it just undermines the legitimacy of protecting the privileges or immunities of citizens by means of, because you've got this weird doctrine, substantive due process, which cannot be historically justified. So it, it really distorts. In, in the course of taking a step in the right direction, it really is a bad, it really distorts matters overall. Yes? I'll try to make my answers shorter than that one. But that, <laughs> but that, but that, that really was a major uh, question, a very important one.
Right. Well, at the, I didn't get to what my theory of the police power was. I said I had a – and it's, by the way, it's not my own theory. I, I, I borrowed it from um, um, uh, Thomas Cooley, who was a justice on the Michigan Supreme Court and wrote a famous treatise on the police power states, which was published the same year as the 14th Amendment was enacted, and as it was refined by Christopher Tiedemann, who wrote another treatise on the police power states. You have to have a theory of the police power states, and then you have to have a theory of the enumerated powers. So on, on the federal government side, it's relatively easy. What trumps the presumption of liberty uh, is if the c Congress is actually exercising one of its enumerated powers properly interpreted, not this open-ended Commerce Clause power that goes everywhere, but the, but the real thing, uh, as justified on originalist grounds, if it's exercising one of those powers and it's doing so in a way that it can justify as being necessary in the sense that they have to do it, they have to restrict liberty this way. I, in the book, I give some possible doctrinal ways of dealing with this, like least restrictive alternative tests or things like that as ways of putting this into effect, then it's justified. And, but it's just, you know, very little of what the government does can be justified that way because um, it's not really trying to exercise its commerce. Take the medical cannabis case, for example. Uh, now, we, don't, we can see that Congress has power over interstate uh, uh, sales and, of cannabis. Under the, and, and that's under the expansive doctrine, under the narrow original doctrine. We still think they would have power over buying and selling, although it might have to be limited to regulating it, not prohibiting it. But granting them that, what are they trying to do here? In my case, they're trying to stop somebody from growing something in their backyard to, take, to, to use themselves. That's one of my clients grows it in her backyard. They, they claim to be able to reach that under the Interstate Commerce Clause. We think that's improper. I think that's improper. I'm hoping that the court will agree. Now, on the state level, uh, you have to have a theory of the police. Everybody needs a theory of the police power. It's not just me. Everybody's got to have one. You got, I mean, you didn't think you had to have one, but I'm telling you, when you come out of here, you better have one because everyone needs one. Uh, so you have to have a theory, uh, theory of the police power. The one I propose in my book is the same one as Cooley and Tiedemann's, and that is it's the power of the government to protect the rights of everybody. Um, essentially, unless a law can be justified restricting your liberty on the grounds that it's protecting the rights of someone else, then you have to say what that right is. Um, or the liberty of someone else, then it's, then it's not a proper exercise of the police power. So you basically justify every law as a protection of individual rights. And I could give you lots of examples of where this would be perfectly non-controversial, like murder, rape, armed robbery, um, or even the regulations of economic activities. Like, for example, if building a, a railing on a balcony too low would actually be negligence so that you could be sued and tort for that after the fact, then it would be a police power, a proper police power regulation to require that railings be of a certain height to prevent the thing from happening in the first place because it would be violating, it would be preventing the violation of a tort, commission of a tort by a negligent act after the fact. You don't have to wait, the government doesn't have to wait till after the tort is committed. They can have a police power regulation in advance. So there's an awful lot of regulation that would be possible. Now, you raised a specific answer, a question about fetal life. Um, the answer to that question is there's no, I don't address that in my book. I, I, I don't think there's an easy answer to that question because it all depends on whether you decide that, that fetuses or before you are born, you are, you are right. You have rights of the kind that can't be protected. This is what everybody is debating. Um, and, and I know the arguments on both sides of that question. But, so, but, the, but my analysis would kick in once you've reached your conclusion about that. So once you've concluded 
that a fetus does have the same rights as, as born people who are born, then the police power would apply to the fetus as well as anybody else. And the Privileges or Immunities Clause would apply to the fetus as well as anybody else. But if you conclude that you only have the rights of personhood, the legal rights of personhood after you're born, then if you're not born, then you don't have those same rights. Although I would say that the implication of this analysis is that it would be a violation of the 14th Amendment not to protect uh, uh, fetuses if, in fact, you conclude that they have rights. And that is a position that, that, that pro-life people have been very uh, reluctant to advance. They tend to argue, well, it's a matter of state law and it can be done as a matter of policy if you want to or not want to. But what this argument suggests is to be, to be consistent with the police power uh, uh, theory that's consistent with the Privilege or Immunities Clause, that if, you ha if you're a person, it's murder. If you're not a person, it's not murder. And, and, but, I can't, but my analysis can't answer the personhood question. That would require a completely different kind of analysis. Oh, did, did, is he on the queue? Um, the, uh, it's, it, it, that's a tough question as to who, who answers the question. I, I think ultimately when it comes to a, a, a constitutional decision of this magnitude, uh, I think ultimately it, it, if it's a question that can be answered based on the original meaning of the Constitution, I think it should be answered uh, ultimately by a court if, if there happens to be an answer to that question. Um, so I would say yes. That the court must put it this way. I would say, when you say the court answered, let me just say something a little bit about judicial review because I sense a certain amount of uh, skepticism about judicial review in this group. Uh, let me just say that my view of judicial review is that the courts do have a say, uh, but the fact that they have a say doesn't mean, and the fact that in some cases they seem to have the last word doesn't, make, doesn't itself justify a conclusion that there's something called judicial supremacy going on here. Because ultimately, I view the court, I view the, uh, the tripartite uh, system of government we have as having three equal, co-equal branches. And if you have three equal branches, that means all three get a say. That's what equality of branches means. It does not mean that the third branch says yes to whatever the first two branches say. So if you have three co-equal branches and all three get a say, then the Supreme Court and the federal courts ultimately, when we talk about a federal question under the Constitution, they get a say too. Now they don't get a say if the case never reaches them. So ultimately, the first Congress gets the first say, or we're, if we're talking about federal laws, and if they fail to pass a law, the Supreme Court doesn't then get to pass the law saying, you know, that was constitutional. We make that law. No, no. If the, if the Congress says we don't think that's constitutional, the Supreme Court never gets a say. If the president thinks it's unconstitutional and Congress doesn't override the veto, the Supreme Court never gets a say. They only get a say when the other two branches of government think it is constitutional, or in the case of President Bush, signs into law like the the uh, campaign finance laws, which he says is unconstitutional, but he's going to sign into law anyway. Um, they, only get a say, they only get a say when the other two branches of government say yes, and now, they got, now you go to the third branch of government, and it gets to say. That, doesn't, that is not a, a, next, a description of judicial supremacy. It's a description of judicial equality. So yes, ultimately, they get, they get to have an opinion too under our system, rightly so. Well, that quieted everybody up. <laughs> Yes, sir. Are you a plant, sir? Uh, do you know that I actually, uh, or, uh, I actually am the person who created the LysanderSpooner.org um, website that contains on it all the, um, all the writings of Lysander Spooner, including his private correspondence? Did you know that? You didn't know that. Uh, what was your question? 
It had something to do with the Constitution of No Authority. About the Constitution of No Authority. That's, it's, it, my book is dedicated to Lysander Spooner. It's dedicated to two individuals, which is fitting for this program, James Madison and Lysander Spooner. Um, it's dedicated to James Madison because the, the system of government that I'm defending in my book um, um, is Madison's system with the parts put back in that he wrote and that he liked and the parts put back in the 14th Amendment that he had nothing to do with. Um, so, uh, I just, and it's dedicated to Lysander Spooner because Lysander Spooner had a big influence in my becoming an originalist. Um, it was not his later book, the, Constitu the, the Constitution of No Authority, which I will talk about in a moment, but his early book called The Unconstitutionality of Slavery, which he wrote in 1845, um, that when I was teaching in a seminar, um, really caught, I was not an originalist prior to reading that book, and I read this book, and basically he argued for a version of originalism that I'd never heard before, although it, wasn't, it was in existence, I just hadn't heard about it, and that is original meaning originalism in which you, you, you don't base your rulings on the, uh, you don't base your decisions of what the Constitution means on what the framers may have intended, subjectively or otherwise. You base it on what they said. And then the meaning, the public meaning of what they said must remain the same until it's properly changed by amendment. That's what makes it an originalism because it has to stay the same unless it's properly changed. And that's the, that's the method he used in the unconstitutionality of slavery. Whether he was right about that, his conclusion about slavery is another question. But that's, so that had a big influence on the method that I defend in my book, uh, Original Meaning Originalism. Later on in his life, um, he became even more radical than he was. He was a very radical abolitionist. That's when he wrote this his book. He, and and he, he argued against, one last little pitch for Spooner, he argued against the radical uh, abolitionists, um, the Garrisonians, the Garrisonians' position was that the Constitution was a covenant with death and an agreement with hell because it sanctioned slavery. And they advocated secession from the Union as a remedy. Uh, and they were particularly uh, incensed about the Fugitive Slave Clause of the Constitution, which really federalized slavery in a way that was contrary to states' rights. Um, so they were quite, but they, so they viewed the Constitution, and when Madison's notes were published, in the 1840s, when they first appeared, they had been secret for 50 years, they used Madison's notes as uh, evidence of the fact that the Constitution was what they called a pro-slavery document. Uh, uh, Wendell Phillips wrote a monograph saying Constitution a pro-slavery document, which was a, had a five or six page introduction, and then it was just excerpts from Madison's notes proving that the founders really intended slavery, and that's why it should be interpreted that way. Spooner argued against that. Spooner said, no, we, we, it doesn't matter what their secret intentions were. It doesn't matter what Madison's note says. What matters is what they said. And it turns out they never explicitly sanctioned slavery. They refused to do so for whatever reason, and we know some of the reasons why, but they never mentioned the word. And all the places in which it's supposedly referred to, there are an innocent meaning that can be attached to those phrases. And then he said, he basically adopted a presumption of liberty in a sense. He, it wasn't quite that, but what he said was, um, when you, whenever there's a claim made that the Constitution has, in, has, has adopted something, that this particular language means something radically unjust, radically unjust, then it better be really explicit before we will find that. So if there's an innocent meaning that we can give those words over the radically unjust one, we will favor the innocent meaning over the radically unjust one. And that's the interpretive presumption he used to reach this conclusion that the Constitution never formally sanctioned slavery. Later in his life, Sorry, I'm, I'm sorry, I went on way too long. I promised I wouldn't, and I did. Later in his life, he made this argument that the Constitution was of no authority. It was a more radical argument, it was after the Civil War. And the argument was premised on the argument, and I think it's sort of the irrefutable argument, 
that the Constitution lacked the consent of the governed that it claimed to have. And because nobody really could, did consent to it at the time, no one could consent to it now, it hasn't been consented to. The whole first part of my book is an answer to that challenge, um, answer to Spooner's challenge. Um, and in that, I, I first make the argument that he's right, that the Constitution cannot be justified on the basis of consent because the consent is entirely fictitious. And I know that I don't have time to justify that claim here now, and, and I do spend an awful lot of time justifying it at the beginning of the book. But then I say that he's ultimately wrong because the Constitution could be legitimate even in the absence of consent if it provides sufficient procedures to ensure that the rights of the people on whom it is being imposed without their consent are not being violated. In other words, if the Constitution has within it enough procedural protections to assure that the rights of non-consenting people on whom it's being imposed are not being violated, then the Constitution could be legitimate even in the absence of a general popular consent. And then I argue that that's a reason for interpreting the Constitution according to its original meaning because there's a lot more procedural protections of liberty that are there in the whole thing than there is there in the Constitution that we've been given by the Supreme Court. So ultimately, I think I have an answer to Spooner. Uh, which I wouldn't have had to come up with if I hadn't taken Spooner so seriously in the first place. Thanks. Well, I suppose Lysander Spooner is such a popular figure that we had to expect him to come up, even, the, even regardless. So we'll trust that you're not a plant, sir, and that <laughs> Professor Barnett has not paid you to, to raise his name uh, here in the Masson program. Um, but uh, thank you very much, uh, Professor Barnett. Thank you very much uh, for coming today. Um, we have a reception just outside, as always, and you're welcome to partake of that. And I hope you'll be here for future Madison Program speakers later this semester. <laughs>